This hour of Canuck Central is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company, helping local business since 1892. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. The Canucks for Kids telethon night is set to go here at Rogers Arena. You can visit Canucks.com slash telethon to get in your donation and also text Kids Fund to 30333 to donate now. Also, uh, on the broadcast tonight, Elliot Friedman and Randeep Janda telling the great stories of how the Canucks for Kids Fund helps out so many in our communities here across the province. So getting this question here, Sat, on the Dunbar Lumber text line, it's um, Eric. Can you please explain how Vegas gets under the cap if they play Stone tonight? <laughs> Uh, Eric, I'd, I'd love to be able to eloquently explain to you how the Vegas Golden Knights have done this. Um, but I'm just going to go by what Cap Friendly is telling us. Yes. Uh, Mark Stone was activated, mm-hmm. so he is likely to play tonight, Sat. Yes. And um, this from Cap Friendly about uh, 40 minutes ago. This is the most simultaneous players a team has had on LTIR since our inception in 2015. Vegas currently has seven players on LTIR. The previous record was six, held by the Blackhawks and the Maple Leafs. Uh, Riley Smith, Laurent Bressois, William Carrier, Nolan Patrick, Brett Howden, Nick Haig, and Jake Bischoff. All on LTIR. Yeah. Um, So what that allowed them to do was exceed the cap by 11.56 million. So now they have 430,000 in cap space remaining. Rough figures. So that's what had to happen for Vegas to be able to activate Mark Stone. The math checks out. Yeah. It comes down to the spirit of it. However, the NHL has made it clear they're not going after this. Not right now, maybe the next CBA. And I know fans get frustrated because they look back to the longer recapture or whatever. But the LTIR situation is something that's been ongoing ever since even 2011 when the Canucks had a bunch of players on LTIR and had to wait until the uh, end of the season to activate guys like Edler heading into the postseason. They were well over the cap that year, too. So this team's taking advantage of that. But I can understand how eye-rolling it's becoming. It's, It's like... Just magically put a bunch of guys on LTIR, and this is how you make it work? They didn't even have to trade Dodonov? Yeah. Like, what's going on? They nixed the trade for Dodonov, and it didn't even matter. Now Dodonov is playing with, like, this, uh, (laughs) you know, this untapped motivation that he hadn't had previously, and he's been on fire for the Vegas Golden Knights. You know, it... It is a loophole, and of course Vegas is not the first team to use it, as you mentioned, Sat. It's become more of an issue lately. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly uh, Tampa didn't do any favors for the rest of the league with the T-shirts, you know, $100 million over the cap or whatever it was, $10 million over the cap. Um, the thing about it is they're... At this time of year, every single player on your roster can technically be injured. Yes. Every single guy has something going on. Big As players will always tell you, like, everybody's got something going on by the end of the season. So that's why it's it's disingenuous. It's because if it's a playoff game, guy can probably play. You know, Mark Stone could probably have played a week ago, two weeks ago, if he really wanted to. But 
the extra rest certainly isn't going to hurt him waiting for the latest possible chance to get into the playoffs or helping his team get into the playoffs as it now currently stands. But this is the problem with this rule is that technically, you know, guys, guys are injured, right? You know, and you can sell it that guys are actually injured at this time of year. How serious that is. I mean, that's up for debate. But you put them on LTIR, and then for at least, what is it, 10 days, they're not allowed to come back? So um, it's it's the loophole that now pretty much every team in the league is having to use. And it's also really just magnified by the flat salary cap that is forcing teams to really get creative yeah. with how they manage their salaries. Well, the NHL says that they check the status of players, right? Like they they need to get a medical update and they need to get the information so they can see that everything is above board and they're just not, you know, magically putting guys on LTIR. But I kind of wonder how strong that vetting process is. Right. Is it kind of like what it was back in the day in high school where all you needed was a doctor's note? (laughs) Or did they actually check in on the doctor's note? Did they actually call in to see, did this actually happen? Did they double check or did he just take the note yeah. for what it, what it is? And you can have whatever. As long as some teachers were like, as long as I get the note, I can just give you the check mark. I don't care whether you're lied about it or not. But give me the piece of paper that tells me that you have an excuse. I wonder if the NHL has the same approach. It's yeah. like, just give me the doctor's note, Nick. And it's like, <laughs> Dr. Nick sending in a medical update. Yeah. They don't even have to go as far as they go as uh, in, in uh, Ferris Bueller's day off. You know, calling <laughs> the, the principal and everything. Rudy! I want my daughter outside the school in 10 minutes. <laughs> it's uh, Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. Uh, but uh, Vegas is going to have Mark Stone in the lineup tonight. It's certainly trending that way as they've put uh, one-third of an NHL roster on LTIR today. So they could make it work. Um uh, what are you going to do? you got to laugh about it, I guess. Uh, Corey Pronman uh, at The Athletic uh, covering NHL prospects uh, joining us now. Thanks for this, Corey. How are you? I hope you're not laughing at me and you're, you're laughing at the, <laughs> the cap situation. Yeah, the, it, it's, it's the cap situation that's just uh, hilarious with the Vegas Golden Knights right now and how they are uh, maneuvering things to uh, make sure Mark Stone gets off of uh, LTIR ahead of the postseason. But... Uh, uh, as I said, all we can do is kind of laugh about it because everybody is exploiting it uh, any which way they can at this point. Um, it's it's a really sure. interesting time in, in the league right now. It's, as the uh, end of the season is approaching, we're seeing uh, a lot of college players signing and and about to make their debuts. Owen Power tonight, right? Uh, Maddie Beneers uh, coming up for Seattle as as one of the localer ones uh, to to the West Coast. Uh, it, it's I don't know, Corey, like I feel like this just kind of grows every single year where more and more big time college prospects are signing and and, you know, making their their season debuts towards the end of the NHL year. Right. Well, this this recent class was a very good college class. You you, you can mention Kent Johnson too, the fifth overall pick coming in, the leading scorer in CAA, Bobby Brinks also playing tonight for Philadelphia. Uh, This is a very good college class. And I think next year you'll see Luke Hughes sign and. Uh, we'll see where we are. You know whether Adam Fantilli goes back for an extra year at Michigan or not, depending on how he goes in the draft. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no, this is a very promising college class. I'm watching power play right now, actually. Well, and and of those guys that we were just kind of talking about of that class, who would you say had the best year that maybe 
advanced them more than anybody else? Probably Beneers. Like I mean, I mean, Power was really good too at Michigan, but uh, but Beneers. I when I from the games I watched of his between Michigan, the U twenty team with USA, and then in, in, at Beijing at the Olympics, I thought he had the best season among among the college players. Just a really well rounded player. He's a good skater. He's skilled. He competes really hard. I thought. He always knew about the two-way game and and the, and the work ethic, but I thought his offensive game really flourished at Michigan this season. I thought he showed a lot of skill and scoring ability that I didn't always see in previous seasons. So I think he's going to step into Seattle and help that team right away. But maybe, maybe obviously not for this season. They're they're well out of it, but but he can be an important part of, of them trying to get back onto solid footing next season. Has it? Um... What's been the change? Um, why, why are more talented players choosing to go through the college route these days than they were in, in the past? Well, there's a couple of, of variables. I mean, the most interesting part of it is when the Canadian players go that route. It's not yeah. abnormal for American players to go, to go to college and and you know, whether it's you know through the NTDP then to the college or, or something along those lines, it's when Owen Power and Kent Johnson and Fantilli are top end Canadian prospects are going that route. That's been the big the biggest differentiator. And there was a while there where they weren't uh, after the 2005 CBA. Before that, when you went to college, you uh, weren't drafted in the same year as the junior players. They were drafted typically a year later, so it gave more incentive for the Canadian prospects to go the college route. But now I think there's been a, there's been a change. I think the USHL becoming a more prominent league and a better development league uh, has given gives players more incentive to go the USA route because they know they'll get a competitive junior environment to go with the education later on. Uh, you know, cause, because obviously because they can't go play major junior, they got to play BCHL or USHL typically before. So, so I think those are some of the, the key variables. But it's a very small sample size too, about a three or four uh, high end Canadian players. Right. And I think the Chicago Steel being very prominent and becoming a top-end junior organization had a lot to do with that for Owen Power and Adam Fantilli. It, you know, there's obviously pros and cons to, to, to all the different routes that, that a young player can take, but for the college route specifically, you know, not having as many games and in theory getting more practice time, can that be um, helpful for uh, the development of a young player to have more practice time rather than game time? Yeah, it's a, it's an ongoing debate I, I have with people around the industry, where people some people think that the higher quality competition, the training, uh, benefits going to college over a junior, and then there's some who argue they don't get just don't get enough games at the college level. You know, especially if you get injured at any stretch in the season, there they the junior season is a lot longer. You know, the CHL playoffs this year much longer than usual, but they typically go you know, well, well into the spring and the, the college season is, al- is already over. So I think those are all things that that, you, that people balance. And th- there's no, I think, golden rule. Both college and junior have developed many great NHL players. Uh, tying things up on the NCAA end, I mean, we've seen a lot of some, some of the college free agents sign, and Ben Myers seems to be the big one that's still kind of yet to decide what his future is like. What do you make of this crop of NCAA free agents that are signing, and, and how good can Ben Myers truly be? 
Yeah, I think Ben Myers is the only one who's a for sure going to play in the NHL type of free agent. Typically, when with college free agents, there aren't a lot of those guys who are for sure going to play. And I, but I think Myers is. I think he has all the NHL assets. He's a good skater. He has some offense. He competes hard. He can play the middle competently. So I think he could find a, a spot in the bottom half of an NHL lineup. And uh, he's going to have a, a ton of offers. And you know, basically, he'll have his pick of the team he can go to. Uh, I would say it's an average uh, crop. Typically, you like that you have like the one or two premium guys and a bunch of guys who you're typically getting organizational depth. If you get games, never mind a real NHL player, you're dancing. Uh, but but yeah, Ben Myers, uh, I think, will be in the NHL both what he once he signs and I think next season as well. Uh, you mentioned Ken Johnson earlier. He's obviously a local boy here to Vancouver. Um, how do you think his game translates uh, to to the NHL level? Well, he's got exceptional skill. He just like the, what he can do with the puck in terms of it just his his one on one play, his playmaking. It's really really high end. Uh, I think there's going to be some learning curves for him. He's not the best skater. He's not the most well rounded player. I'm not sure if he can play center in the NHL. He's in the top two line center role right away. So I think there's going to be an adjustment curve there for him initially. I think long term, you're getting a, a quality top six forward in Columbus, whether it's on wing or on the center position, but uh, but I could see him taking a little bit more time than a guy like a Matty Beniers or Owen Power, who are more well-rounded prospects. Now, turning our sights to the uh, 2022 NHL entry draft, and one of the things that I find interesting, and it's one of the things that we don't really know a lot about, and it's the impact of what's happening in Ukraine with Russia on the potential drafting of Russian players. And I've heard you know, different uh, prospect guys and different people in the league saying that it could impact uh, what teams decide to do, especially when it comes to players being able to come over and what else may happen with transfer agreement or not. What's the sense you get when it comes to the Russian prospects in this year's draft could it be a situation where we see those guys perhaps fall a bit more than they should based on their talent it's possible i'm not sure what issues in terms of a transfer agreement they're refer you're, you're they're referring to uh, to my there is no transfer agreement yes between well, the NHL and, and russia yeah, so basically uh, one of the things that was discussed, and this is something that Scott Wheeler talked to us about too, is that uh, there's a sense that maybe because there isn't that agreement that uh, the Russians may want to revisit that to some degree to try to create an avenue for some more compensation, just that there's been some more talk about the Russians perhaps pushing for some of that moving forward in the future. Yeah, it's possible. I would be surprised. I think a big part of the KHL is they want to be a competitive league for talent, and when they establish those transfer agreements, it almost admits that you're going to lose the players essentially and just ask for compensation. So uh, it could happen. I would be surprised. Uh, in terms of what's going to happen with the Russian players in the draft, I've heard varying things. I've talked to some teams who say they're not going to take Russians at all. I've talked to some teams who think it won't be a big deal. They'll still take players where they merit, which frankly isn't all that too different from how some teams approach Russians before the, before the, the invasion in Ukraine. It's probably a little bit more accentuated right now, but I – if you look at it, I think there will probably be an effect. I don't think it'll be a major effect, probably more of a mild effect. If a guy is supposed to go top 10, I'm guessing he goes somewhere in the teens. If he's supposed to go in the first round, he might go in the second or the third round. Uh, I, I would guess that's what's going to happen. I don't see a league-wide aversion taking Russians. I mean, you, you, there's been Russians that have been signed since this, since this has started. Uh, I, I know talking to organizations, they're having more difficulties getting visas for these uh, for these players, and I think that is a legitimate concern. If a guy isn't already in North America, that will have an impact potentially on, on trying to draft a player who is already in Russia and not in North America. Uh, but I'm not sure it's going to 
drop a guy like, say, Daniel Yurov, who you can argue is a top 10, 12 talent, to like the third round or something along those lines. No, and I didn't think that. I th- I was thinking more along the lines where the Canucks might be picking, which kind of is going to be anywhere from that, you know, 12 to 16 most likely, unless they make this miracle run and make the postseason. But it kind of looks like they'll be in that range. And I kind of wonder if there could be a lot of value there that all of a sudden you find yourself with the possibility of drafting a guy that probably should have gone a few slots higher. It's possible. I mean, you go back to the 2010 draft, uh, and back then there was a really uh, big anti-Russian sentiment in the NHL, and that's the year where you had Tarasenko go 16 and you had Evgeny Kuznetsov go in the mid-20s. So it's always possible that could happen. It's, you know, we'll see. I think that the sentiment among a lot of NHL teams is let's see what the situation looks like in July. It doesn't seem like it's getting any better at this current stage, but we'll see where the situation is in July. Uh, before I don't, I'm not hearing a lot of teams making hard commitments to exactly what they're doing on the Russian front. Uh, in your latest over at the Athletic, your latest uh, rankings, um, you, you talk a lot about Slikovsky, who's who's really come on here as as the seasons come along. Uh, does he pose a real threat to to potentially go number one overall? Uh, it's, he's in the mix for sure. But uh, Shane Wright's been very good of late too. He had the slow yeah. first half of the season. Second half, he's been scoring more at the rate you, you thought he would be coming into the season. So he, he's not looking to give up the crown, uh, you know, quite so easily. I think it'll be a really interesting last month or two here for those players because you know the CHL playoffs delayed. So uh, right after the lottery ends, you're, you're going to kind of see that the OHL playoffs really get into full swing, and it's possible Sofkovsky, who is still in the league of playoffs, got an assist today in the league of playoffs uh, could be at the world championships during that time frame too. So I think it could be a really fascinating uh, little juggling act there, but I think unless Sefkowski really does something spectacular over these next few weeks, whether it's in Liga or in the world championships, teams prefer this. We'll we'll want the center at first overall. Uh, So I, I, I don't think Wright's given up that crown just quite yet. Corey, uh, we appreciate the time as always. Thanks for this today. Thank you. There is uh... Corey Pronman of The Athletic covering uh, the NHL draft and prospects as normal. And uh, should be an interesting year, obviously, for the Canucks at. Uh, it's been nice that we haven't had to focus on the draft because they've kept their playoff hopes alive <laughs> for so long, yeah. pretty much against all odds. And uh, it leads to tonight with a do-or-die matchup against the Vegas Golden Knights. Yeah, like an absolutely massive matchup, right? And if, if the Canucks find a way to beat the Vegas Golden Knights, then whether you like it or not, they kind of push themselves back into the playoff race because then you're two points back of Vegas. Um, you could be four, you're four back of L.A., but you have a game coming up against them, which means yep. if you win that in regulation, you close that gap to two later in the season. So essentially it means you're within striking range. But you lose this game against Vegas, that gap becomes a six-point gap, and their regulation wins are yeah. quite a few more than what you do. So all of a sudden, that six-point gap is more like a seven-point gap. And with eight games to go after tonight, it just becomes a numbers problem. Because one way or not, one way or another, the Canucks essentially have to pass two teams. And whether it's Vegas being one of them, yep. or Dallas if they falter, or, or the LA, LA Kings, you got to pass two teams. Yep. And it looks like Vegas is a team you have to pass to get in. Well... Look, there's nine games left. 
They don't have to win all nine, but there's just certain games you can't lose. Well, yeah, because it's a four. It's a proverbial four point yeah. game, and, and you you can lose maybe a game. You just can't lose to Vegas. You can't lose to Vegas. You can't lose next Monday to Dallas. Uh, you probably like you can't lose to Arizona. Like they've got to win another three. They've got to at least extend this win streak to six games here. But you win tonight, and you don't control your own destiny. But you're a slip up away from. Maybe doing so. Yeah. And that's the position you put yourself in if you beat the Golden Knights. But it, it's going to be such a massive challenge considering the degree, the degree difficulty in the matchup. Because especially when you're short a couple of key forwards yeah. tonight. The one thing I... The one thing I won't... Uh, I can't stand for. I mean, it's not the right phrase, but... The one thing that would just be absolutely soul-crushing in a big game like tonight, and it wouldn't be the first time that this team has done it, they did it last Sunday against the Vegas Golden Knights here at Rogers Arena. They can't have another terrible start, Sat. <laughs> like, this massive game, don't don't be down 2 nothing in the first 5, 6, 7 minutes again, you know? Don't well, get outshot 10-1 to 1 in the first few minutes of the game again. Yeah, it might be hard to um, tilt the tide a lot tonight. So Demko's going to have to be on top of his game, right? Like that, That's going to have to be a part of it. And it's going to be hard to keep them from, you know, having the territorial advantage for the most part. Yeah. But the start, you're right, is so critical. Because this team falls back a couple, you're just probably not coming back. Unless Vegas just takes your foot off the gas. But considering what happened last time these two teams met, and how upset Pete DeBoer was by the effort, the lackluster effort of the Golden Knights, you would expect that they would be ready to play tonight and would have their game ready to go. So you have to survive. As much as, as, much as this is a home game, you kind of have to survive the first period without being down more than maybe a goal at worst. Well, well it has been an interesting trend. You know, um, you know, is it just slow starts? Is it because you know, they uh, aren't that deep of a team, especially with the injuries that... You know, it's hard in the first period. Other teams, especially good ones, can roll four yeah. lines against the Canucks, and it's harder for them to keep up, so to speak. But then you get to the third period, Boudreaux starts to shorten his bench, and the Canucks seem to have a lot of success in the third period. You look at their goal differentials. First period, they're awful. First, third period, they're above water. So it's it's quite the contrast. But a big part of it for me is just that once they get to the third period, especially when they're trailing, Boudreaux is just going to really lean on his top guys. Can you theoretically do that for 60 minutes? Probably not. No, but you may have to try. Right? I mean, I mean, they're in a spot now where you really don't have a choice. Like, wh- whether you like it or not, you have to give everything you have. You have to push until, you know, everything at this point. There is there's no save a little bit uh, of gas for the next game coming up. That effort, again, it, it's it's simplifying things, but to me tonight, all comes down to Vancouver's effort. If they play like they can't lose this game and play completely desperate and don't give Vegas a lot of time and space, they have a chance tonight. But yeah. they have to play that style. Otherwise, it becomes a hope and a prayer. And you're hoping that Demko stands on his head and you get a couple of bounces. Try to take control with your effort tonight. Uh, Jesse, you guys have been saying do or die for six months. It's felt like that, Jesse. <laughs> well, it pretty much has been. Um, there's, as Bruce Boudreaux said it today, you know, it's not a must win because technically you can lose and still, uh, still have hope going into the next game, um, because you're not mathematically out, but 
he also knows this is a game they can't lose. No, so. they can't. I mean, and even so, like we're talking about win this game tonight. And then it keeps you kind of alive. It's just being alive on the fringes of the playoff race. Yeah. I mean, if you want to really be alive in the race, those other games were do or die for that to happen. It's when we talked about that seven-game homestand, that's the one. Yeah. We had those two games, Detroit and Buffalo. And I don't want to sit here and do the what if, but the point being, as much as, yes, it's exciting right now, they still have a kind of a chance – Let's be real. It's still a massive long shot. They're on the fringes of the playoff race. They're not like one win away, and it's like you're in the playoff spot. And somebody texted in and said, don't they just have to pass L.A.? No, they got to pass two teams. Yep. Vegas is ahead of Vancouver, and L.A. is ahead of Vegas. Mm-hmm. For you to finish third in the Pacific, you have to leapfrog Vegas, and you got to pass L.A. Now, if you want to pass, you want to go into the wild card spot, you still have to pass Vegas because they're ahead of you in the standings. Mm-hmm. So you got to pass Vegas and you got to pass Dallas to go in the wild card spot. If you want to go to the third spot, you got to pass Vegas and you got to pass LA. Now, is there a world where Dallas falters and Vancouver and Vegas get in? Potentially, that means you got to pass Dallas and LA. So no matter how you slice it, you got to pass two teams to be able to get into a playoff spot. It's not just about LA, and that's why this game is so important. But that just keeps you somewhere alive. The real critical games for them to be in the playoff race, they have to win earlier. This is just about keep your season alive and keep that hope just flickering a bit longer. Yeah, they are uh, just trying to stay alive, keep the dream alive at this point. But uh, Vegas may be looking at this the same way, given their precarious playoff positioning. It's kind of a must win for both teams. Stan Richo, Satyar Shah. This is Canuck Central. Yeah, it's Canuck Central, the final segment. And this hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. Canucks in Vegas, Golden Knights. It's the Canucks for Kids Telethon Night. Head to Canucks.com slash telethon to get in your donation We'll have more on the telethon through the course of the program and into the pregame show. And, of course, on the broadcast, Elliot Friedman is in town to host alongside our good friend and colleague, Randy Janda. So uh, be tuning in for that as they tell the great stories of how much the Canucks for Kids Fund does across this great province of ours. So this Vegas game sat, as we've been talking about, is massive. Um, and the Dunbar Lumber text line is kind of funny to see some of the reactions. <laughs> it goes both ways. It's pretty hilarious. On the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, this one, you can tell who the bandwagon fans are. We've been talking about having to jump Vegas and L.A. for weeks. And this is breaking news to people. Hey, man, people are excited across the province, you know. I hear big game at, at Rogers Arena, and it's just like, you know, you, you'll see a good crowd here tonight. And you know what? The crowds, and I know we've talked about this. It's something I missed in the last uh, week and a bit here, Sat. But the crowds here have really, like, they've, they've just been wanting to have big games so badly, yeah. right? They didn't have the playoffs a couple of years ago. Those were all in a bubble, no fans in the stands. And now you have... This, finally, after the the gong show that was last season, fans back in the building this year, the terrible start, but they've found a way to get back into this race somehow, some way. 
Uh, the fans have really wanted to be able to cheer on this team in a big game. I've been so impressed with the fans all season, Dan. Even yeah. when it was half capacity, you know, fans have been giving it. And there's been so much criticism over the fan base at Rogers Arena, fans that show up to the arena. People say they're too corporate. Yeah. They're not often, you know, engaged Eating their sushi and whatever And all else. that sort of stuff. It can be a bit of wine. Tomb. You know what? Like, uh, the pandemic and uh, the... Uh, uh, Normal normalcy being taken away from us in so many different ways yeah. had us all kind of begging for some normalcy. So I wonder if that also has an impact with people coming back and just enjoying life so much more when they get a chance to go out to these sort of things and and people are just you know just happy to be here and the environment kind of has everybody buying in and really enjoying themselves. I wonder if that is a part of it. But this is the most engaged I have seen fans in this building since probably the heyday, ten years ago, eleven years ago. Yeah. And if you came to regular season games. From like 2008 to 2012 or so, those four or five years, the crowd was buzzing. It was really fun to show up. Yeah, maybe corporate here and there, but a lot of buzz around a good and entertaining team. This year, the fans have been at that level when they've shown up. Yeah, the team hasn't been, hasn't been as good and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, home home the fans showing up at Rogers Arena haven't actually seen enough wins considering um, how their home record's gone. So they haven't even been given enough to yeah. cheer for, all things considered, this year. But you're right. The fans who've shown up to Rogers, and if you've been to games, I don't think you can dispute how much more engaged and how much more fun this building's been this year. And winning breeds that, right? Um, because we're now pretty much at a 50-game stretch where the Canucks have been playing at a points percentage over 600 under Bruce Boudreaux. True, but I remember early in the season when the Canucks were playing like crap and they were... There, people were like giving Oliver Ekman Larson a standing <laughs> ovation for for making a curling clear that that didn't turn out to be an icing. It was a standing ovation for the man. Like, come on! Like, they've been uh, wanting to cheer something from day one this season. That was the funniest true. thing. It was half a crowd, and that nine thousand people or whatever showed up to that game because yep. it was half capacity. Were, like on their feet, like giving OEL an ovation for making a curling shot. And it is uh, the first fan base that's given their coach a chant as well. So. Bruce, there it is. Uh, Nate from Comox. This is the absolute truest version of meaningful games in March. It's April. But I, I get what you're saying, Nate. <laughs> All after betting is gone. I wonder what he's thinking now. He finally hit his goal, almost making the playoffs. Let's raise the standards here <laughs> in Vancouver. <laughs> hit, his goal of all, almost, hit his goal of almost making the playoffs. And I do believe a lot of – and, you know, somebody texted in and said, why don't you let fans have hope? I mean, we're sitting here talking about how if you win this game, you're in the race kind of again and, you know, and how to win this game and what needs to happen for them to have success and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's like, why are you talking about hope? But you also have to be realistic about what it takes for you to make the playoffs mm-hmm. and what has to happen. Now, your hope based on all the information is up to you. I'm not going to tell you not to have hope. Heck, you're a sports fan. You can you should have hope. Isn't half the fun of being a sports fan turning on a game, showing up and seeing something you've never seen before potentially yep. or the unthinkable happening because it can happen and it will happen and maybe someday it's your team it happens to. I'm not going to tell anybody not to live for that and not enjoy that and not want it. But as far as analyzing and t- telling you about what could happen and what will happen or well, no, what could happen and what the likelihood is of that happening, well, you got to be realistic about it. And the reality is if the Canucks lose tonight, as much as it might be done already, like you're, you're done done. But if you do win, you're still behind the eight ball. And this is the point we're trying to make. It's not that, you know, say don't have hope. You actually give yourself a chance because if you win t- tonight and beat Vegas, then you are one misstep away yeah. from maybe getting in. 
because it's a two-point gap with Vegas, same amount of games played. You have a four-point gap against LA, but you have a game in ha- you have a game uh, coming up against them later in the season. So you're talking about two to three points you got to make up on these teams outside of what you can control against them. That's one or two games. Yeah. So you could get a bounce. You still need things to go your way. You need to get lucky. But if you win tonight, you put yourself in a spot where you can pounce on that opportunity. But even so, even if you win, you're still behind L.A. You're still behind Vegas. You still have to do more to pass those teams. You still have to go pretty much 8-1 and one to get in. Yeah. right. And that one game you lose has to be against a certain team. Probably Ottawa next Tuesday, uh, if we're being uh, uh, honest about it. But it... Look, it's a tough spot. If they win tonight, they give themselves more hope. If they lose tonight, you're pretty much out of hope. So that's that's kind of where you're at. And, you know, I mean, we've all kind of had our declarations. I said it after the Detroit loss. Like, this is it. This was the game that they, they couldn't afford to lose. They end up losing to Buffalo a couple of nights later, and that made it even worse. You know, they've, they've just had a lot of these games because of the situation they put themselves in so early in the season. Well, if they lose tonight, yeah, people will be like, oh, this is the game that cost you the playoffs. And technically it may be, but this is not the game that's going to cost you. No. The you know what I that, mean? Like, they cost themselves the playoffs in the first 25 games. Yeah, and also other stretches. And, yeah. and again, I'm not trying to make this about you know what happened in In the Boudreaux era, it was the seven-game homestand. But my point being that no matter what happens the rest of the season, yeah. the Canucks aren't missing the playoffs because of what happens from now on. If anything, they're doing the best they can, and, and you give them a lot of credit to for keep them. the dream alive. They're yeah. keeping the dream alive. But it's, it's not about so much. If they miss, it's not so much about what's, what's happened tonight or the rest of this way. It's really the amount of ground they had to make up that they couldn't make up at the end of the day. If they don't get in. Uh, East Van Marlowe. First big game for this group in front of fans. If Canucks win, players will feel Vancouver buzz love. Playoffs unlikely. Throwing Vegas an anchor. Priceless. So uh, Marlowe is just hoping uh, the Canucks deal a death blow to the Vegas Golden Knights while keeping their playoff hopes alive. Uh, We had a question earlier. Which forwards are out for the Vancouver Canucks tonight? Uh, it's a lot, but, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Tanner Pearson and Brock Besser will not be returning to the lineup tonight. Uh, the injuries are such that, uh, you know, Nils Hoaglander, obviously, uh, likely out for the rest of the year. Brandon Sutter hasn't played at all. Um, Kyle Burroughs is, uh, the 12th forward right now. Yeah. They probably run with looking like 11 forwards and 7D tonight, just given the, forward situation that Bruce Boudreaux has to use. Yeah, and that's just the reality of where they are with their bodies right now and the amount of injuries they've had. And that's what makes this a bigger challenge because, hey, if you had Pearson and Besser, not to say you would win this game, but it evens the playing field a little bit, especially with Mark Stone coming off IR. So tonight's game comes down to really four players for Vancouver. Elias Pettersson, Bo Horvat, JT Miller, and Thatcher Demko between the pipes. Yes, Quinn Hughes matters a lot. So does OEL defensively to do their thing. But what they're going to need to do is get saves and score. And who's going to score for you? It comes down to those three guys up front tonight. It's, um, you know, you look at the Canucks' top six right now. Pedersen, Horvat, Garland. I think that's a line that Boudreaux is going to have to lean on quite a bit. Uh, he talked about liking what Pod Colson and Chason did with Miller in the third period the other night against San Jose, so they're rolling out tonight. And uh, how can you not with the way Jason is playing? And that's all you could ever ask for, you know, is a guy from lower in the lineup, when needed, when called upon, steps up to the plate and uh, hits a couple of home runs uh, late in the in the game. 
uh, to save it coming off the bench with a big pinch hit home run. That's essentially what Alex Chason's been able to do here for the Vancouver Canucks. I mean, Boudreaux was musing about him potentially being one of the stars of the week with the heaters that he's been on. I mean, that was Bruce talking about it yesterday, right? And clearly, Chason did not get yeah. the nod. So what if Austin Matthews had seven <laughs> goals in four games? Did you see the seven points Chason had? Uh, but, you know, his play has been critical honestly yeah the production that he's had the last few games and there's no exaggeration has helped keep their season alive yep and if chase on wasn't here and if he wasn't able to have the production he's had here then we wouldn't be sitting here talking about how important this game is tonight for vancouver he's look he's just a solid vet you know and um i know his skill level isn't uh where uh, some of uh, the younger players is but he just knows how to play the game he knows what what areas to get to, uh, is smart about it, understands his limitations, and works around them, understands his strengths, works with them as best he can, and it's really helped the Canucks in the last week. And a guy like Miller, who you know can be the guy that holds the puck on that line, and mm-hmm. uh, Chase on just is like, I, I just got to get to my spots, and I'll find a couple of chances. It was similar when he was playing with Pedersen. Yeah. You know, Pedersen would give him three or four chances, shot chances uh, in those games. He just wasn't, wasn't able to finish Just it. wasn't finishing them. But, you know, Chason's going to be able to get to those spots. And with the way Pod Colson has played, you know, that's that's really what it's going to come down to is how can this Canucks top six fare against the, the deep Vegas lineup. So Alex Chason has been a player who's been healthy scratched quite a few times this season, yeah. right? And Hoaglander had one healthy scratch, and he's been injured. And yep. Put Colson had one healthy, a couple healthy scratches. He was also a healthy scratch earlier this year. Yeah. Was it one game or something it was, or whatever it was. Um, Chason has a better scoring rate than both those guys. Yeah. Chason has 10 goals. Put Colson has 10. Hoaglander has 10. Yeah. He has 18 points. Hoaglander has 18. Put Colson has 19. But Put Colson's played like, you know, nine or 10 more games than he has. And we're talking about how good Put Colson's done. Here's a 13 forward who, yes, has played on the power play, but he's giving you, scoring-wise, like a 15-goal season. Like, over the course of an 82-game season, he's on pace to score by 15 for you. That's nothing to scoff at as a middle six guy, let alone a guy that's like 13 forward that gives you a little bit of something, right? And yes, organizationally, you should be in a spot where you don't need to rely on the chase-ons, but regardless of needing to rely on him or not, you can't diminish what he's done for this team, and, no. and for a guy making seven hundred and fifty k, it's it's one of the it's a really good value deal for the Canucks for one season. And I'm not even sitting in here and saying bring the guy back next year. It's just being truthful for what he's done and what he's accomplished. And right now, that depth is providing invaluable for a Canucks team that has a lot of injuries on the wings. Look, this is about as much as you can ask for out of a PTO signing. <sighs> yeah, could right? you ask for anything else? I don't think so. Like in uh, ten goals. You know, he's got more goals in this season than Zach McEwen has for his whole career. Did Duclair sign a PTO at one point? Uh, I think with Ottawa, yeah. Maybe that's the the only guy you can point out and say. Or maybe, I'm sure we can think of there will be other guys you can think of over time that come up and you're like, okay, well, this guy ended up being, being pretty good or whatever. I think there's been a couple of PTOs that were all right. But outside of hitting gold with a guy like Anthony Duclair on a PTO and becoming a young player for you, like what else can you ask for a guy coming in on a PTO and giving you 10 goals and when injuries happen, is able to at least give you respectable minutes in your top six? It's It's been really impressive uh, for, for Chase on and, and how he's been able to do it. The, the one player, you know, he scored the other night against San Jose. 
I'm really curious um, what Connor Garland has to give this team continuously here. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's it's interesting because somebody mentions, too, about Chase on and his power play time. And it's like, well, he gets power play time. We talk about Garland and say, why is he not getting power play time? Well, it's not just about being gifted power play time. It's about what you can do with power play time. No player has a better goal scoring rate per 60 on the power play than Chase on on this team this year. Yeah. There's a reason why he plays on the power play and the reason he kept playing on the power play. No Canuck player has done better on the power play relative to their ice time yeah. and minutes, goal scoring wise, than Alex Chason has. And, and, it's, and if you look at the minutes that Garland's played on the power play here and there, he's coming nowhere near the productivity that Chason's had on the power play. So it's not just about, hey, giving a guy power play time, it's about what that guy's doing with the power play time. And if any idiot could play on the power play and produce points, every team would have a 25% efficiency rate on their power play. It's not that simple. No. And you can't just point to it and say, oh, he plays on the power play. And I, and I don't want to make this about Louis Erickson, but the reason I brought this up the other, uh, other week when they played Arizona was just kind of illuminate how successful Chase is being relative to other guys that made a lot of money. So Louis Erickson played almost 260 minutes on the power play in Vancouver over his five years in Vancouver. He had 15 power play points. Alex Chason, and this is before the other night, had 12 power play points in 107 minutes on the power play. Wow. So, and people are like, well, Ch- Louis didn't play on the power play. When yeah. Louis played on the power play, he was not even half as productive as Chason was, even in limited time. The point being, there is a skill, and there is a... There, he knows how to play the net front. He and, knows how to play it, and he plays it well. Exactly. Just getting power play time is one thing. What you do with that power play time is another thing. And... The, the, and as much as we want to see a guy like Garland do a bit more and get that power play time, is he a guy that can be efficient in that role? Because the time he's had, he hasn't been as effective. And I kind of wonder, when we listen to a guy like Yannick Hansen talk about it, he says, well, he's a really talented player, but I'm not sure his skill set fits for the power play. And that's what it comes down to. It's not just about how good you are. It's about what you can execute in a role and how productive you can be in doing so. Um, lots of texts coming into the Dunbar Lumber text line. Canucks playoffs. The chase is on. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Why not? Uh, Larry from Vancouver. Vegas will try to suck the life out of the fans at Rogers Arena in the first period. If they do, and the Canucks can make a comeback victory, the fans will blow the roof off the building. And uh, this one, Keith and Qualicum Beach. Dan, it's two words. Golden Knights, not Golden Knights. Okay. That's, Thanks, Keith. I uh, appreciate I, that. I didn't even notice. <laughs> didn't even notice. The things people pick up on. Uh, coming up, we are going to get into <laughs> more of the matchups. We'll bring in our broadcast team, Brendan Batchelor and Corey Hirsch, for the pregame roundtable. We'll join up with the rest of the province as we continue to get ready for the Canucks and the Vegas Golden Knights. The Canucks for Kids Telethon is going on tonight. So during the broadcast on Sportsnet, you'll see Elliot Friedman and Randeep Janda telling some of the great stories of what the Canucks for Kids Fund helps with many different organizations across the province. Visit Canucks.com slash telethon to get in your donation now. Dan Richo, Satyar Shah, the official pregame show is next on Sportsnet 650.